Amen? Amen. One name is higher. Praise Jesus. Uh, my name is Jeremy. It's not Jesus, nowhere close, but I'm glad to be one of his, and I hope you are as well. Welcome here. We're going to continue worshiping today, but uh, as is my tradition, I like to start off uh, sermons, if I can possibly think of one, with a little story, and this one's about a time when we first moved to Michigan. And as you know, any place you live presents its own unique set of challenges. If you're in an arid climate, there's not enough water. If you're in a tropical climate, there's too much water. If you're in Chicago or the UP, there's too much snow. And if you're in Midland, it's absolutely perfect. (laughs) Right? Well, it's a great place to live. There's no doubt about it. There's beautiful things that come with our city that don't come anywhere close of cities of equivalent size. We're glad to be here. We enjoy life in Midland. But one of the things I learned about when I got here was this little furry animal that flies called bats. Exactly right. I guess it's a Michigan thing. I know there are bats in other places, but in Missouri they have caves, and bat in Michigan, I guess they just borrow our houses. I don't know. (laughs) But here are these little animals, and they desire to get in, and they want to live where I live, and I don't want them to live where I live. But I didn't really think it was that big of a deal until I discovered I had a couple potentially in my garage, a sort of attic or storage area. Went up there one day, saw some little brown droppings, said, ah, no big deal, just some rodents or something, put out a few traps, whatever, we'll get on with it. But then I started to learn about bats and infestation and guano, its toxicity and the enormous process you have to go through to get rid of these things. And I start Googling online and reading these horror stories. And I'm thinking, oh man, what have we gotten ourselves into? What looked like a little mousetrap for $5 at Ace turns out to be this major project. So I'm looking into it, and I call some experts in the field, and I say, what do we got to do? And they're like, well, actually, they're a protected species, so you can't yourself you know, eliminate them. Instead, you have to call a specialist, and they have to find the holes, and they don't just plug the holes, but they put in the one-way trap so the bats can get out but not come in, and then they come back, and they plug the holes, and then they rip out all the insulation, and then they spray down the special stuff that gets rid of toxicity, and they bring back in the new insulation, and then ten, twelve thousand dollars later, you're all ready to go. I'm like, it's a bat, you know? Ah, not really. Oh. Man, as it turns out, praise be to God, our problem wasn't that big. It was an old one that just didn't get totally taken care of. There's no new infestation and everything was okay. But I was quickly uh, thankful that uh, the Lord was gracious and we didn't have to go through that. I know with the flood and many other things, you all have experienced some tremendously difficult situations with your houses. And as I said at the start, anywhere you live presents its own unique set of challenges and what I think as you go through this process if you've had a flood if you've had bats or whatever you'll identify with this and this restoration process to a place where damage has been done is extremely long and costly and difficult but in the end you know it's worth it and it's what you absolutely must do if you have bats you're not going to pass inspection you won't be able to resell your home value goes down etc same with water in your basement. Look, I'm not a guy who knows all about, you know, the biology of bats and their species and the 
complexities of the chemicals they're using to get rid of the bad stuff in our attic. I'm just a guy who wants to live in a house that's free from yucky stuff. Right? So too with us as human beings. See, we live in this world and it's uh, been infested. There is evil that has come in and it's messed things up. And it turns out that it's a lot more costly than what we originally perhaps thought. And as a result, basically our only option is to bring in a specialist who understands every nook and cranny of our planet, indeed of creation itself, and is able to plug the holes, fill in the cracks, get rid of the bad stuff, and bring in the new. This process, of course, is going to take time, and we won't understand every single little detail. But we can trust in the end that even though humanity has a lot bigger problem than bats, that there is one who can get rid of the toxicity in our world, eliminating evil, healing and restoring and guiding us safely to the end of the process. That one, of course, is Jesus. And so today I want to show you in Mark chapter 1 specifically how he does that. We have a front row seat. Some of you don't really like front row seats, I see. But this is a good thing at a ballpark or whatever else. We have a front row seat to the action, to the battle, to what's going down in Capernaum. This is a a really upfront center view of the fight that we are in and the fight that Jesus won. So in Mark chapter 1, you don't have to turn there yet because I'm going to take you there. But Mark chapter 1, what you're going to see is three things. You're going to see the problem of evil and suffering. You'll see evil in the demoniac. You'll see suffering in Simon Peter's mother-in-law. You'll see those two problems in this text. And then... After that, you'll say, okay, here's a problem. What's the solution? The solution is Jesus who's going to get rid of the evil and heal the suffering. And the application for us is, okay, so if we got a problem with evil, with sin, with suffering, what do we do? Well, we go to Jesus who gets rid of our evil and heals us in the process. So this is the good news, the good news that Jesus won. We talked about this. I'm just going to refresh your memory. If it's like mine, it's a bit fuzzy. A couple weeks ago, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, we said the theme was Jesus won. And as a result, that's good news. And good news is basically what we today call the gospel. Exactly right. And an ancient good news story was simply reports of victory from the battlefield. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's why you see these newspaper-type graphics for this series, people declaring the good news, saying, hey, look, the champion, the hero, the superhero, the victor won. That's good news. That's the gospel. Today we look at how specifically Jesus wins by getting rid of evil and restoring the broken. So we're going to go to the site of one of the most famous battles then. It's not a physical battle like you would imagine as of Gettysburg or Waterloo, but instead it's a spiritual battle like the one that you and I are engaged in every day of our lives. What's going to happen is in the city of Capernaum, we're going to see Jesus take on uh, some of his foes. Here's, here's where we're going though. Let me take you there real quick. Uh, if you remember from last week, we talked a little bit about the Roman Empire. This is the Mediterranean Sea. You see Europe on the left, and to the right is the Arabian Desert and Asia. On the 
eastern side or the right-hand side of the Mediterranean Sea is this little strip of land in green. In the middle is the capital city, Jerusalem. That is the nation of Israel. And we're going to the northern part, which looks like this. And we're going to the top of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is the uh, body of water you see at the top, the Dead Sea. It's at the bottom. They're connected by the Jordan River. And so, specifically, we're going to the fish, fishing village on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee called P- Capernaum. Now, you'll hear today Jesus of where? Where was Jesus from? Nazareth. See where Nazareth is at? It's just a little to the west, southwest of Capernaum. That's about 20 miles. So you can see this is not a very big map. Capernaum and Nazareth are separated by about 20 miles. So Capernaum, the fishing village on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee is where we're going today. Here's a picture of it. It's not hard to find. We know exactly where it is from the ancient ruins. It's right here. It's a small town on the borders of two different Roman provinces. And what that means is, is not only was it a fishing village that supplied much of um, that area and indeed other parts of the Mediterranean world, but it's also sort of like a Nema outpost, if you will. It's on the far end or the stretches of the outer rim of the galaxy. This spot uh, would have a Roman garrison stationed there to make sure there's no rebellion, to make sure there's no disorder, but the officials are going to live in their capitals much further away. So the people who are here are either fishermen or they're soldiers, or since they're in a border town which experiences a lot of duties and tariffs and things like that, then there would also be tax collectors, exactly. Like a certain tax collector we'll meet a couple chapters later by the name of Matthew. So you want to find a tax collector, border town, good place to go. Well, here we are in Capernaum. Next slide. And what you see when you move in a little bit closer is these ruins, these pillars of what used to be a synagogue. We're going into today both um, visually and textually into the synagogue in Capernaum. This is the site of the fight where Jesus confronts the demons. So if you zoom in a little bit further, you'll see here is the third or fourth century version. Now Jesus is in the first century Uh, So this is built a couple hundred years later on the exact site that Jesus walked. So this is the spot. It's a small town. There's only one synagogue. This is it. So here's an interior view of what uh, the later synagogue looked like. This is a pretty good-sized synagogue. Um, You'll read later about someone that Jesus Jesus heals, and it's the centurion who built the synagogue. So there's Roman favor going towards the Jewish occupants of this area at the time. Here's another slide. And you can see on the bottom, the black stones. On top of that are the white stones. The black stones are the original foundation where Jesus actually walked and taught in the synagogue that we're going to read about today. Those stones is where this took place. On top of it, the white stones are a later addition, but these black stones right here is exactly where this incident took place. The gospel is historical. The gospel is verifiable. It is 
authentic, it is archaeological, it's real, and it impacts us today. Those are the stones that Jesus walked on. So, that's a little show of where we're going today. Let me go ahead and read this passage for you. It's Mark chapter 1, we're beginning in verse 24. Uh, Sorry, 21, and we're going to go down to 24. After we read it, I'm going to expound it and bring out a couple key points that I want you to be sure to notice, and then we will apply it to our lives via the sermon. So this is Mark chapter 1, beginning verse 21. It says this, And when they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day, he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue, that place you just saw. And he was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean or evil spirit. And he cried out, to, he cried out what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Has you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city together gathered at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me point out a few things. I'm sure there's a lot more, but these are some that are integral to what we're saying today. And they are these. Beginning verse 21 It says this, it says, immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue. I'm glad you're here today. (laughs) You know, one of the things we talk about as Christians is we say, we should go to church. And some of us think it's this functional, legalistic ritual that we go through. But the reality is, it's not just that you should go, go to church, but you should be like Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus did is you look throughout Scripture, you will regularly find him making it a habitual practice to go into the synagogue and open the Word of God and teach. That is an integral part of Christ's ministry. Immediately, first thing he does, he gets there. Where does he go? To the pub, to the you know, downtown business hall, to the restaurant, to the whatever? No, his first spot is to the synagogue where he begins teaching the scriptures. Now, it doesn't tell us here what he taught, but we know later in scripture that as Jesus commissions us that, uh, to go and make disciples, that teaching, regardless of which biblical section we're using, is an essential part of leading others to Jesus. He says, go and make disciples how? Two ways, by baptizing and by teaching. 
These are two of the primary means Jesus gives us. So immediately on the Sabbath, they go, they enter the synagogue, and Jesus is teaching. And it says the way in which he taught was significantly different than their other teachers. He taught with one as authority. In other words, some people are saying, this is what tradition says. Other people are saying, this is what the Word of God says. Jesus can speak and say, this is what I say. And it is true. If I come to you on Sunday morning and say, thus saith Jeremy, throw it out the window, you know. But my goal in presenting the word to you is not to say, thus saith Jeremy, it's to say, thus saith the Lord. But when the Lord says it, it's entirely different. He can say, this is what I say. (laughs) Here is scripture itself. Here is the word of God delivered um, completely undiluted and directly to you. Thus saith the Lord. So Jesus speaks with tremendous authority. Then the next thing you see is that the demon who encounters him, he calls him two different names. And the reason he would do so is because exorcists of that time believed that if you know another person's name, you have power over them. So to command them by name is to skip the title and go straight to the proper or specific name. In other words, because I know your name, you have to obey me. Jesus is going to reject that and say no to the demon. Yes, you may know my name, but you have no power over me whatsoever. And in fact, what the demon says reveals to us much about who Christ is. Let me give you these two names. He says, one, you are Jesus of Nazareth. True. Two, you are the Holy One of God. True. Jesus of Nazareth, you are a human being the Holy One of God, you are divine as well. In other words, Jesus is what none of the rest of us ever will be. He is fully God and fully man. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. This is the unique thing where Jesus is not 50-50, 60-40, 80-20, or anything else. He's a 100-100. 100% God and 100% man. That is essential to your salvation and your Christian experience. And I will show you how in just a minute. The Holy One and the person, Jesus of Nazareth. So they're right about what they call him. They ask him a question, have you come to destroy us? This may not even be a question. You could read it. You have come to destroy us. Both are true. And as a result, Jesus just commands him, be silent, get out. He's not asking. He's telling. This is what you will do. The demon has to respond. And they're all absolutely amazed. They are shocked. This is what happens when Jesus comes into the room. People are not necessarily warm and cuddly, but instead they are blown away. (laughs) They're like, what is this? This is over the top. He's scary and he's good. This is wild. So here's Jesus. He casts out the demon. He eliminates the evil. And next he goes to Simon. They're like, let's take this guy to mother-in-law. This could help us out. He does. And I want to point out something in verse 31. It says this. It says, Jesus came and took her by the hand. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Jesus? You know, sometimes he shows us that he doesn't have to be in the same room to heal someone. He can heal them from far away. He can just think the thought and all of a sudden they're better. But in this case, for whatever reason, he wants to demonstrate his affection towards this woman. And so he goes to her and doesn't just say a prayer over her, but instead he reaches out in an entirely appropriate way, grabs her by the hand. 
Jesus takes you, church, by the hand. When you are sick, when you are hurting, when you need help, he reaches out to you. Grab on to Jesus' hand. Let him lift you up. So immediately she gets up and she begins to serve him. There's no recovery time. There's no recuperation. It's a double miracle. You'll see that happen a lot throughout the gospel. When Jesus heals someone, it's not like, okay, now your leg is put back together and the cast is off and you can kind of limp around for a little bit. No, no, Jesus says, get up and jump for joy. You're better. You are ready to go. There's no healing or holding back. You're completely restored. This is something that only the Son of God can do. No physician, no other healer can do it like that. Jesus just goes, bam, and they're all better. So here is this text of Jesus, and what we see then is the problem, the solution, and the application. There is a problem in this text with evil. The specialist who is the solution is Jesus, and what he does is he gets rid of the evil, and he heals and restores Similarly, in our lives today, we can say, yes, you know, we may or may not be struggling with demon oppression, but we know this, there is a great deal of evil in our world. Romans 5.1 said, this is how the bats, or this is how the infestation occurred, that because of Adam and because of your hereditary relationship to him, Sin came in through this little hole, this tiny single person. It got in, and as a result, it is spread to the entire planet. It's no longer contained in one spot, but it's affected everybody and everything. You sin, and you do it honestly. (laughs) You get it honestly. You inherited the disobeying disease. I inherited the disobeying disease. We are rebels by nature. We run from and disobey God because we're related to the original disobeyer. Just as sin came into the world through this one man, death, Romans 5.12, death spread through sin and so death spread to all because all sinned. In other words, here's the deal. If you sin, you experience the effects. You experience it and others experience it. And so whatever suffering you're experiencing in your lives could be from one or two reasons. One is you did something and as a result it was a bad decision and you're experiencing the consequences. Another is somebody else could have done something and you're experiencing the consequences of their actions. Now somebody else doesn't have to be alive today. It could have been Adam himself who introduced death into this world. As a result of Adam's sin, death came in and now all die. We all experience decay. We all experience evil. Cancer is not because of a sin in your life. Cancer is because of sin in the world and this horrible thing that causes us pain. Jesus is the solution to it. So what happens is the Bible's view of sin and suffering is that sin came into the world through Adam. As a result, we all experience it. Sometimes we do it and experience it, and sometimes it's just part of living in a fallen world. But either way, we know that in this life, we will sin and we will suffer and we need help. If we try to get rid of it ourselves through religion or through reading or education or government systems or whatever other mechanism we put in place, it ultimately falls short. We have to realize that sin is toxic and its effects are absolutely devastating. Romans 8, 19 says that all of creation is groaning or longing in eager expectation for its redemption. In other words, everybody is experiencing this. No one is enjoying it. We're all like, God help, this stinks. I am not enjoying this. 
Yes, it's my fault, but I'm also getting everything from everybody else too, and it is not fun. Lord, please help. As a result, that's the problem. The solution is Jesus, the specialist, the Holy One of God. He is the one divine source who can overcome all evil. Listen to this statement. Are you ready? The force is greater than the foe. The force is greater than the foe. The foe is greater than me. The foe is greater than you. But the foe is not greater than the power of God. The force is greater than the foe. And as a result, in this passage and in your life and mine, Jesus can get rid of evil. He is the God-man. He is also of Nazareth, though, which means he is human. So it is not that he is powerful and removed and untouchable and non-caring, but instead he is a specific person who has walked on our planet, experienced the same things we do, and as a result, he feels bad for us. There is empathy, there is compassion. So not only is he powerful, but he desires to heal as well. And what you see now then is not only is the force greater than the foe, but the healer is greater than the hurt. The force is greater than the foe and the healer is greater than the hurt and in that you have the God-man, the force, the power, the strength, the man, the healer, the compassion, the savior. The problem in our world is the toxicity of evil and suffering. The solution is Jesus who gets rid of evil and suffering and heals and restores. Okay, you're sitting there kind of quiet, but let me say that again. Jesus is heals and restores (laughs) did you hear that jesus heals and restores the force is greater than the foe the healer is greater than the hurt jesus heals and restores so then in the next eight minutes let me tell you how this applies to your life if you want to be like jesus then what you have to do is go through the process it's one thing to say yeah there's bats in the attic and they're making a mess and i wish they were gone it's another to actually make the phone call bite the bullet and go through with it <laughs> you know in order to do that a few things have to be in place one is you have to really trust you have to believe the specialist you have to know that they got your best interest at heart and even though you don't understand all the ins and outs You're going to go for it and let them take care of it. So too with Jesus. In your life, this relationship with Christ begins by faith. It is by grace through faith. And if you don't believe that he is the person who can do it, you have no hope. If you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus, I'm telling you, he's the only way out. You can try to fix it with anything else in the world. Sex, drugs, money, rock and roll, doesn't matter. It will not get you there. Christ is your only hope solution he is the one who can locate the holes plug the cracks get rid of the evil and make it better you have to believe in jesus look he is the one who will come and take you by the hand and lift you up and bring you out first and foremost this restoration process requires faith it's going to take time I would love to be able to wave a magic wand and have my house be perfect. Not going to happen. I would love to be able to wave a magic wand and make this world be perfect. It's not going to happen. I would love to be able to preach a sermon and wave a wand and make you perfect the next day. Make me perfect. It's not going to happen. It's a process. And for whatever reason, God in his divine wisdom and sovereignty chose to let us walk through it. And we don't understand all the ins and outs. We don't get the science. We don't get the timing. We just have to believe that he is and he does and he will. 
This is the way it works. Look, in the restoration process and the fight against sin, while you're trying to get rid of evil in your life, understand it's going to be hard work. It's going to be costly. And you are in it for the long haul. Don't expect victory to occur overnight. You will be disappointed nearly every time. It is not the single event or incident that you're interested in, but instead the trajectory of your life. Yes, there will be ups and downs and ups and downs, and some of them could be quite down. But as long as over the long haul you are going up, then you're moving in the right direction. When do you get to stop? When does this fight end? Well, either when you're dead or when Jesus takes you home. That's it. It's a long process, but you've got to believe by grace through faith that God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the other end. That's the deal. It's a long, hard work. Now, for me, that's tough. I don't really like waiting, and I don't like the, the time delay. And for me, what may seem like... For me, it may be that a few days or weeks or months seem like an eternity. The reality is, for God, an eternity seems like a few days, weeks, or even a month. And so, even though I don't understand, just like I didn't understand that I was in a house and I didn't want bats, I'm in this globe, and I don't want evil. And there's going to be a process to get rid of it, and I just have to trust the process. I have to believe that Jesus is at work and he did and he will win. That's good news. So Jesus is getting rid of evil. I have to believe that, but I'm also a part of the process as well. You know, if I don't call the <laughs> bat person, if I don't pay them, they're not going to come. They're not going to do their work. I have to call on Jesus and I have to participate in this process as well. And what this means is getting r- rid of evil within myself, which we talked about a little bit, And also helping the healing of others. In other words, first of all, you get rid of evil in yourself. Colossians 3, 5 says, put it to death. Evil is not a bat. It's not a protected species. It's not a good thing in any way whatsoever. It's just something you have to kill and get rid of. You have to put it to death. And as a result, if you do so, what happens is the works of the flesh become the fertile soil in which the fruit of the Spirit can grow. Because they are dead and they are dying. And as a result, God's work and God's word will take root in your life. And Galatians 5.22 says it will look like this. If you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, they will die and rot and turn into the most healthy compost you can imagine. And that will yield the result of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do you see these things growing in your life? If you do, then the trajectory is up. If not, get to work. Don't quit. This is the fruit of the Spirit that God wants to grow in you. So that work grows in you, and then you help it grow in others as well. Notice how Jesus, first of all, gets rid of evil, takes the plank out, if you will, and then begins to help others. So too with us. Get rid of the evil in yourself and then begin to help others. Jesus, in Mark chapter 1, verse 31, we pointed out this pretty clearly earlier. He came and he took her by the hand. We are not 
single individuals, but instead we are the body of Christ. We are a gathered community. We are the called out church. And as a result, we are to come together and take one another by the hand. Help in the healing. There's things you suffer with that I can help with. There's things that I suffer with that you can help with. But none of us is sufficient in and of ourselves to get over everything. We need each other. And so, take each other by the hand. Be a church. Be a body. Be a family. Be a community centered on Christ. Let me give you some practical advice for doing that. I want to be really specific here. Here's some ways you can help somebody else. How you can help heal them. You may not have the gift of healing where you can just pray over them and they get up. But instead, you can help them emotionally. You can help them spiritually. You can help them relationally, psychologically, etc. Here's how. First of all, you have to be available. These disciples got Jesus and they took him somewhere. If he said, no thanks guys, I'm busy. I got something else to do. He wouldn't have been there. He wouldn't have seen it. He wouldn't have healed her. But instead, he's available. You have to be available. Then you have to listen. They say, hey, we've got a mother-in-law who's sick. You have to be available. And not only available, you've got to be willing to listen to people. You've got to hear what they're truly saying and not just be waiting to give your story, but instead to hear theirs and be more interested in what they're experiencing than what you're experiencing. You have to be available and you have to listen good way to listen is to ask questions and sometimes I get in this quandary and I'm just sitting there I'm like I don't even know what question to ask you know what questions a good question to ask what questions a good question to ask no that's the good question (laughs) I'm serious if you're sitting with someone and you don't know what to ask just ask them I don't even know what to ask what should I ask and it's kind of funny but it actually works Say, well, you know what? It would be really helpful if you'd ask about this. Okay, what about that? <laughs> and they fill in the gaps. Just ask. Like, if you don't even know what question to ask, ask them which question to ask. You might also want to try asking them what kind of input are they looking for because you know and have probably experienced when somebody comes to you, there's different kinds of input. Sometimes they're really asking for advice, like what should I do here? Other times they don't want your advice. <laughs> they just want your listening ear. And so you've got to be ready to respond the appropriate way. And if you're not awesome at reading body language and, you know, all this indirect cues and stuff, you may just want to say, hey, I'm not sure where to go here. Are you looking for my advice or are you looking for my affirmation? And let, let it be on them and follow their cues. And then you're available and you're able to help. Pray out loud for them after you're done. You may not have any advice, but you can ask Jesus what to do. Ask him. And he'll help. Look, I've just said be available, listen, ask questions, and pray. You know one of the really key places we do that? It's in a small group. (laughs) What do you often do in a small group at church? You uh, ask each other questions. Hey, how's it going? How's life? How's your walk with Christ? What's Jesus doing for you right now? Is there any way we can encourage you? Blah, blah. That's a small group. Here in just a moment, you're going to hear an announcement from Adam Peterson about some of the stuff that's coming up in the fall, some opportunities we're giving you, we're hoping that will produce fruit in your life where you will see this fruit of the Spirit go and grow in community with others. It's not an easy thing. It's an intentional thing. It doesn't happen on its own. It happens by you doing it on purpose. And we want everyone here at Midland Free to be involved in some sort of group other than this big room 
whether you're on a serving team, whether you're in a life group, whether you're in a small church, whether you're in a discipleship group, whether you're whatever, just be involved in one thing so that you're involved with other people. If you can do that, you will learn, you will benefit, you will grow, and you'll benefit others too. Be available, listen, ask questions, pray for other people. This is the body of Christ. Get rid of evil, help the healing, and trust the process. I'm just a guy who lives in a square house, doesn't want any bad stuff to get in. I'm just a human being who lives in a round ball and wants all the bad stuff to be done away with. And I think that our problem is a lot bigger than bats. That's why we fight and kill each other and do even worse. The problem is toxicity, the evil and suffering that Adam introduced. The solution is the second Adam, the specialist Jesus, who gets rid of the evil heals and restores. And the application that I'm calling you to do today is be a part of the process. Get rid of the evil in your life and help the healing in others. Trust in it that by grace through faith, God who is faithful, to be, who began a good work in you, will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. The force is greater than the foe. The healer is greater than the hurt. Jesus gets rid of evil. He heals and restores. Praise be to God forevermore. Father, we, we freely confess that Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. He is the God-man, the specialist who does what no one else can. He heals and restores. He gets rid of evil and leads us to you. We pray, God, that we would You would forgive our sins for ignoring Him, for not listening, for being too busy, for being too burdened, for being too whatever. But instead, at the end of the day, we'd make our whole lives, our whole purpose, our whole identity revolve around that one thing. The process that He created to restore us and bring glory to You. We thank You and praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen.